Welcome to episode 100 of the Fertility Podcast. Gosh, I've been building up to this moment for quite a while and I'm here. It's it's a strange feeling because this has been a good three years of my work to try and put as much as I can into giving a voice to this issue of, of fertility. And I never realised when I first started making this podcast how much there was to say. And I'm going to carry on because until... We have got enough people knowing and talking about what's out there, what could be affecting them, what help is there for them, then my work isn't done. So first of all, I want to say thank you so much for listening, for continuing to listen. If this is your first listen of the Fertility Podcast, welcome. There's there's 99 other episodes that you can have a listen to, I can, I can now tell you. I'm Natalie Silverman, your host. This isn't going to be a really lengthy intro because I did ask on social media for you to let me know if you were enjoying the podcast and I wanted to give you a shout out. So I'm going to do some now and some at the end of the podcast so that it's not just a kind of list of names. Um, But if I haven't mentioned you, then I apologise. And it's just because I was like skimming through everything from the tweets. Hello to walking in our shoes, to seedfertility.com, to Kay, to fertility wellbeing, to Esper, to Stace, to IVF Matters, to How Did We Get Here, uh, to Katie Eves, to Jen, to Liz Walton, to John McLaughlin, and to Fertility Reflexology, to Dr. Esme, to Helena to Brady, uh, Helena, sorry if I've not said your name right, to Andrew Coots, to Surrogacy UK, to Post IVF World, to Woomy Wombface, to Tracy Sainsbury, to Valerie Landis, to Crosby, to Paula Campos, to Ron Heinlein, to holistic health thank you for your for your tweets and your support and i hope to continue giving you really interesting content now for my 100th episode we're putting the spotlight back on male fertility you'll know if you've listened to episodes before i'm really passionate about giving men's issues as much airspace as women's issues so as always i hope you find this useful and all the show notes will be at the end of the episode with details of my guest so you can find out more and you can follow them on social media etc and also get in touch with me so I'm now going to welcome Dr. Kevin McElhaney to the podcast, who is a specialist in male fertility. He's based in Newcastle at the Fertility Centre, and his research interests include a range of male fertility issues, and we're going to have a chat about it now. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Natalie. So could we just start by talking about one of the main areas of interest, because uh, you obviously do a lot of research. Um, is there one main focal point of what you're doing? Well, really, I think at the moment, the two important areas are the genetic basis of male infertility, but also trying to improve the experience of couples affected by male fertility problems. Our real interest in research, I suppose, is the experience of the male patients, because we feel they've been neglected over the years, and particularly some certain groups of male patients, particularly people with things like Klinefelter syndrome, who are kind of have largely been ignored, haven't really been dealt with well by the medical community. So interested in finding out the stories of these people and seeing how we can help them better. So that's the kind of research we're doing at the moment. I have no idea what that syndrome is, so will you tell me a bit more about it? So basically, when a man has no sperm in his ejaculate, that's called azoospermia. There's two reasons for this. It could be due to a blockage, but the commoner reason really is due to a production type problem. And about 10% of men who have uh, this production type of azoospermia have an extra X chromosome in their genetic makeup. This is called Klinefelter syndrome. It causes lots of other things too, uh, and this is where it kind of gets interesting. As part from fertility, they often they perhaps um, they can have a degree of educational impairment. It can be very mild. It can be doctors, lawyers, 
CEOs can have this condition or at the end of the spectrum, they can have profound learning difficulties. They can have trouble with weight gain. They can have trouble with sort of breast enlargement. But often it's more psychological problems they experience, lack of confidence, communication issues, as well as dyslexia, dyspraxia. And a lot of this goes under the carpet. A lot of these, these uh, people aren't sort of diagnosed early. They might be picked up during infertility investigations. And then when you, uh, you kind of speak to them and you tell them what the condition is like, you get um, this feeling that throughout their life they have struggled and there may have been other points at which this diagnosis could have been made. And our research tends to suggest that an earlier diagnosis may lead to better outcomes because obviously you can, the facility is one thing, but beyond that, there's the whole person, the whole, the whole, the whole patient, if you like. There may be opportunities to have put intervention, uh, interventions in for education, which could have maybe adjusted their life course somewhat. You know, uh, I remember I, I got put on this track. So I had a I had a couple, had a patient. Uh, he came with his dad. And um, the dad was a, I think the dad was a, a professional person, and he thought his son was basically lazy and playing up at school. And then we diagnosed this, and the, the dad said he felt really guilty that if he'd known there was something wrong that could explain the behaviour, he would have done things differently. It kind of made me think maybe there was a reason uh, coming from the patients, there was a reason to why we should look at this in more detail. So we set up a kind of a research group now with a Professor John Practice in Sunderland, Scott Wilkes, and endocrinologist Richard Quinton and myself. Uh, we've got partners in the States, uh, Duke University, and we're hoping really to try and explore this more. So we've had great support, great buy-in from the Kleinfeld Syndrome Association, who've been very kind with their time and, and volunteering to, to, to tell their stories. We're hoping to do more work with them. In fact, ESME's going to hopefully do more work with looking at how they... Um, use their Facebook, how they use the social media, because one of the very interesting is how do men seek support? What do men want in terms of support? Now, you'll see guys who are very, very distressed. You'll see some guys who will benefit from counselling, but other guys will say, no, it's not for me. And why is that? I mean, it's quite an interesting question, really. My view is that conventional counselling is perhaps female-facing. There's nothing wrong with that, but it might not be exactly what men want, but men may not be very vocal about what they do want. And it might be that peer group support is really what we should be setting up for all kinds of men who have fertility problems. Kleinfelds men typically are taller than average. Uh, they can be slim. They can have difficulty with weight gain. Uh, as I say, it is a very common reason for a complete lack of sperm in the ejaculate. Sometimes Kleinfelds men have small numbers of sperm in the ejaculate. There have been a few reports of them being naturally fertile. I'm a little bit suspicious about that. But you have seen them with a few million sperm per mil in their ejaculate. I have, I have seen that. One that's really important is this. As, as you're probably aware, most fertility treatments are, un, are unsuccessful. This isn't what perhaps is widely understood, but most of them are unsuccessful. So the patients come and see you, and obviously they want a baby. That's why they're there. But more than that, they want an explanation. That's what we're really bad at as doctors. So I think it's very important that the patients I see that we do what we can to try and find out what the reason is. Well, another thing we're doing in Newcastle is we're very lucky in that we've got a, a new professor of genetics called uh, Joris Feldman. He's a big international figure. One of his interests is male fertility. So what we're hoping to do, and we're arranging this project now, is that we'll be looking at uh, blood samples from our male patients who've got severe male factor problems and comparing it to blood taken from their parents because... What we're looking for is new mutations that could cause these problems. Now, in the vast majority of the people who've got these severe male factor problems, we believe 
It was a genetic problem. It's not a lifestyle issue. It's something very profound has happened. And as perhaps a quarter of the genes in your body are, are the genes that are involved in making sperm or eggs, it's not surprising that a complex process can go wrong. So by comparing the DNA of these patients who've got male factor problems with their parents, we might be able to identify differences, which are new mutations, which could be really important for the future in devising tests so we can tell people what is wrong. Even if we can't get them pregnant, and let's be honest, we can't get everybody pregnant, even if we could tell them what's wrong, give them something to help them to get closure on what's this very, very painful aspect of their life. Now, in the work that you do, you also are involved in this male fertility training nationally. And I've had yeah. a number of conversations focusing on the accessibility for men to ask more questions and maybe have more access to further investigation. Are you seeing then that there is more take up with your services and the work that you're doing uh, across the UK and hopefully you know worldwide this is now because we know and there's been articles written that not enough research has been done into male factor do you feel that there's a shift happening yeah I, I do um and I'll, I'll tell you why I mean, it's coming from patients it's coming from patients being more assertive being more aware uh, and expecting better care the days of people being fobbed off I think you know I hope are, are long gone now, when I started in male fertility, and I've got a fantastic unit, I've got fantastic, very supportive colleagues, what I noticed was going around the country, speaking at meetings, male fertility didn't have the highest of priorities in many people's eyes. Often it was dealt with by junior doctors. The sperm procedures were carried out by junior doctors because the consultants didn't have the interest in it. And I thought that was terrible, having basically people who weren't fully trained looking after the male patients. And I, from a honest point, point of view, that was a sad state of affairs. But speaking to people, this isn't willful malice. This is just um, perhaps a confidence issue. You're talking about doctors in the main who may not have uh, examined the male patient since medical school, yeah, since a very early junior doctor. So I think it was important to try and, and get a, an interest and an enthusiasm for examining male patients, particularly for, for taking their story, taking their history, doing the basic examination, doing the genetic investigations. I mean, I, I kind of think that's what we need to be doing is focusing on getting the basics right. You don't need people doing fancy tests in every small hospital in the country. You know where these people need to be signposted to, perhaps. But the important thing is that junior trainees coming through have got the, the skill set to deal with male patients and that's really what it's all about and I've had terrific buy-in from my colleagues in the British Fertility Society who were really supportive of this I was told by other colleagues that they would stop this that they, they wouldn't want this they wouldn't that they would challenge this position and it hasn't been the case at all I've had tremendous support from them the course now I think it's probably in its fifth year now uh, it's it's accompanied as well as a study day it's accompanied by a, a training module where they learn how to take a history they then take examination they know what the tests they need to do they observe various procedures uh, and I think it, it's really uh, it's really good at increasing the quality of care around the country. Because when you talk about basic training or basic investigation, in this podcast, the, an episode I shared a, a while ago was my husband and I speaking to urologist Jonathan Ramsey, who I know that you are colleagues with, and he examined my husband. Now, we, at that point, our son was two. Nobody along the way, and bear in mind, we were termed having a male factor issue, nobody had done the basic physical examination. And, and we were, when we talked about it, in hindsight, we were so thrown by that when obviously a lot of the well all the initial investigation was done on me and I've talked to all sorts of people since who have had the same is that something that you are 
instilling in your your training then that that basic feeling of the men's bits as crass as Absolutely. i'm saying it, it is something that's done because that can tell a lot it, it can tell the varicose hills there it can tell for example if the vas deferens are missing and that's not that uncommon and i've seen patients for example who may have seen several doctors and the doctors may happy to arrange expensive tests on them but physical examination would be quickly clear what the problem is it's basic and it should be done I've had patients, a few patients who incidentally have had testicle cancers when they've come through, because that obviously, as you perhaps know, is more common in subfertile men. So um, simple, simple things that people should be doing that are important for the fertility cause, but also for the men's general health. For example, if a man's got low volume testes and he's got no sperm to ejaculate, you can tell him it's a production type problem. It's not blockage, it's a production type problem. That's what it's going to be. So this is basic information that couples will find useful when trying to walks through the, the labyrinth that is decision-making in fertility treatment. I mean, how likely is a guy to say, can somebody check me, please? Can somebody have a feel of my balls? That's never going to happen. Yeah. Some of them will say that they weren't expecting it. Less common nowadays, I think. We, I'll tell you a little, slightly funny story. We did an audit of our, our clinic and it came out. But what was interesting was one of the questions I was asked to put in was, were they offered a chaperone? And the question was only answered by about half of people. What we deduced was that the men didn't know what a chaperone was. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know. It just was not on their radar. And, and if um, you did offer them a chaperone, they kind of looked at you askew, one of them was so dodgy about you. Mm. Men have a different mindset. You wouldn't get that if you asked 100 women whether they had washed a chaperone. They would know. Men are just different. And no, they don't, they don't volunteer. They don't find, it, they don't find it pleasant to be examined. It was an interesting paper, I think, came out a couple of weeks ago. It was due to uh, looking at the issue of what do men think about being examined by females. And the bottom line was from this paper, at least, that they didn't really like it. What they really, really didn't like was if there was two females in the room. They felt very uncomfortable with it. Ever heard, have you ever heard that uh, put forward as an opinion by a man? You probably haven't. I mean, some men won't tolerate a female in the room. Uh, some men, um, you know, will tell you, but most men wouldn't say anything. Mm. So men are not so quite so good at expressing their, you know, their, their feelings about things because it might make them feel that we would perceive them as being weak in some way rather than just someone who's expressing an opinion that they're perfectly entitled to make. Now, as, as well as men not having that initial investigation, um, our experience and other people I've spoken to have had the same experience. It seems still that men often aren't even spoken to in these consultations. It's all directed at the women. Uh, and sometimes I speak to specialists who say they make a real point of looking across, uh, flicking their eyes over to the, the man. But I still hear from patients that they feel that the guy isn't included and especially if bad news is delivered I, I recently did an episode with a couple who are currently going through the process of working with the donor the guy was uh, diagnosed with azospermia he had mumps and also an sti as a as a young man he talks about how he felt that the bedside manner of his consultant was was really quite appalling how do you feel about that with regards to the training you're doing and and the, the attitude that you know your 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 peers might have why do you think this still happens well i guess the question one of my recent Research fellows, um, Stan Karabalos up in Aberdeen now, he, he um, did a, a qualitative study looking at the experience of men who were diagnosed with having no sperm in the semen. One of the, the key factors was the initial um, passing over the information. How did it go? That was a really, really big deal for men. And often it was done very badly. Sometimes it would come, for example, from maybe a generalist, a general, a general practitioner, say, some of them, you know, were trying to do a good job. Some of them weren't weren't really sure of what they were discussing, with the implications of it. 
some would say straight up, there's no chance of having a baby. You give a sperm donor. That's not really quite what a couple wants to hear straight up. There's a different way of, of going about that. I'm not saying that's what wouldn't happen at the end of the day. It might in some cases. That isn't that isn't the, isn't the thing to say straight up. Mm. Um, for example, you know, it needs to be repeated. It needs to be referred onwards. So how it, that information is given is really important. It's a bit like, as you say yourself, bad news. You're telling a patient how you know, they've got cancer. They're never going to forget that. It needs to be done well. It needs to be done right. This is the same sort of thing to a degree. You need to do it right and, and sensitively. Now, we've talked about the, the problem. I'm interested to talk to you a bit about um, the kind of state of male fertility because there's been some interesting articles shared. Um, there was one recently from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem talking about sperm counts among men in the West have halved in the past 40 years and are currently falling and that humanity could soon be extinct. <laughs> is this scaremongering or are we in trouble? Well, it's an, again, this has been going on for a while now. A few years ago, one of the training events that we organised, we got two of the great uh, sort of pundits, male fertility, doyen scientists. We had uh, Professor Richard Chart from Edinburgh, who's a strong proponent of the decline in male fertility, the gap against um, Professor Alan Pacey, you may have heard of from Sheffield, who's yeah. against it. And they had a good debate. It was, a, it was quite fun, you know, and we all voted at the end. The argument for it comes from some papers that emerged from Scandinavia and other places over the last, I suppose, 15, 20 years, showing a decline. There was a methodological problem with some of those, and this was pointed out by the detractors that said, what you notice is that every time they change the way in which sperm is looked at, there's a, there's a sudden drop-off in quality. So, so every time that they revise the standard, they revise it downwards, people appear to be less fertile. And that's, so that's just a reflection in some ways of the way in which sperm is being examined versus an absolute decline, if you see what I mean. Right. This last paper from the University of Jerusalem is a methodically better paper because it followed them up in a different way. So there might be something out there, in fact, along these lines, but does that mean we're all going to become extinct overnight? I don't think so. What might be beyond all this, again, isn't really clear. Um, it's so difficult to get good quality hard data on male fertility causes. Um, many studies, for example, haven't shown a link with obesity. Uh, some studies have. Uh, it could be something in the environment. Plastics have been put forward as a particular cause or estrogenic chemicals. Plastics with estrogen properties even. But we don't really know. But it's an interesting question for our time. I mean, it, there's talk maybe of repeating large-scale studies to look at lifestyle factors to see what causes things. But it's a complicated issue. Because I've spoken with Alan Pacey on this podcast. We've talked about the kind of myths around, you know, what men should and shouldn't do with regards to their diet and alcohol and smoking and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I also have talked with Jonathan Ramsey about research that, that hasn't been done and how there's... Nordic countries that might invest in, in, in more in this. I mean, do you, you said that there is some talk. Do you think that there actually is going to be the funding put toward this type of research? Well, at the moment, the National Institute of uh, Health Research has um, put a call out for male fertility funding and investigations along the lines of uh, a study to look at risk factors for male fertility problems. I mean, this and this is, is UK-based? Yeah, this is yeah. the first time we've had this, and this probably won't happen again for many, many years. So people are hopefully going to do some big national studies now looking at male fertility. We're just finishing one at the moment, which is called the Select study. You might have heard of it, which is run by David Miller in Leeds. That's looking to see whether certain ICSI techniques can improve outcomes. Uh, but this is another uh, funding call, which is looking at things that can be used to improve male fertility. So I'll have to wait and see, but it's exciting that finally we have some 
attention. What about any other countries? Uh, are there any ones that you know of that are actively putting the money towards this kind of research? Lots of people will be doing research. For example, these studies will be small mm. and their results inconclusive. For example, we still don't really know whether varicoceles should be treated. This has been going on for decades and decades. You know, we still don't really know the, the bottom line on that. It's complicated. We're hoping to try and produce a, like a policy statement on it perhaps in the next couple of years. But I think more research needs to go into that because that would be something that would be male-related and could be correctable. But there is great controversy over it, as you probably heard. Do you mean whether by performing a varicocele, sorry, is that the right way to say it, performing on yeah. a varicocele, whether yeah. it will then improve a couple's chances of getting pregnant? Is that what the issue it, it, is? Exactly. Now, some studies have shown that that isn't the case, and I personally, I believe there's something in it. However, we need. it's, it's quite difficult in small studies particularly, to show that these improvements in live birth rate do occur. That would be a really good study to see whether treating varicoceles would improve the chance of couples conceiving naturally, perhaps improve the couple's the chance of uh, conceiving to ICSI, and perhaps improve the chance of uh, sperm being recovered surgically. This is something we need to sort of think about, really, as a, as a group, because people assume that the fertility units that we work in just want people to treat between with IVF, they've got a hammer and everything's got a nail, but that isn't the way I see it, and it isn't the way I, that most of the people I work with, the professionals I work with, will see it the same way. IVF exceeds the last resort. We can find other ways to allow couples to conceive naturally. That's what we really want to be doing. Because having gone through ICSI and then learning you know what low success rates there are with it i'm always quite fascinated to just talk more about it and one thing that i know is being discussed at um the fertility uh, conference in in the new year is the and correct me if i've got this wrong but i think i saw that the impact on male offspring of ICSI there's been a study which i have a son as a result of ICSI and i was quite fascinated to know whether there were findings to show anything whether that has an effect on the child's fertility yeah i mean that that study was done by her mentor nye who who teaches in our courses he's based in brussels and this is the first study looking at the 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 boys of ICSI, um, it's difficult to get them to get involved in these sorts of studies because I think the a lot of them just, just aren't interested in coming up using sperm samples for research. But it did appear to show that there was, you know, there was a fertility issue, not, not in all of them. And in some of them, the sperm quantity that was better than their father's, you know, so it isn't guaranteed to, to cause particular problems. It wasn't very surprising, the results. So but there wasn't anything terrible about it either. That, that study didn't show, it was kind of more reassuring than anything else. Some of them had fertility problems, but some of them, their sperm quality was better than their father's would have been. So it doesn't automatically mean that having a son to ICSI means that he's going to have the same fertility problems as his dad. It doesn't automatically mean that. So I think that was actually quite encouraging. I mean, there's so much that uh, we could talk about because I think this is such a fascinating subject. And what I suppose I'm trying to get across from talking to you, and I, I'd like to get final bits of advice from you, is that men have the right to ask more questions and to ask for more investigation if for example they've been told it's unexplained or if they've been told it's male factor and they don't feel comfortable with whatever they're being told to do next i mean if a couple are told to do ICSI and the man like in our case hasn't had any investigation i mean hindsight we've had conversations about whether we should have gone down that route whether it would have changed the outcome as i've said to you we were successful first time so we couldn't have got a better result than we did but mm. what would your advice be to couples in that situation the important thing i think i said earlier is that many couples aren't going to become parents it's, it's unfortunate so i think they're entitled to an explanation best that we can in many cases we 
we can't find currently reasons to why there's a problem. But I still think we should be looking. And I think men are entitled to a basic assessment, which includes an examination if there's a male factor problem. I think that's important. That'll be something useful that can be used to address the problem. That'll be something useful for the, the man's general health. I think really it is, it is important that it's carried out. So I think, yes, they are entitled to an, an explanation. They've got a significant male factor problem. They're entitled, really, I feel, to genetic investigations also to try and work out what the problem is. I, I just don't think that's really the way we should be going. Great stuff. Dr. Kevin McElhaney, thank you. It's been really interesting talking to you. Thank you for your time. My pleasure, Natalie. Before I tell you how you can get the details of this episode, just a quick note from my sponsors, who I have to say a huge thank you to, and they're helping me to keep things running. And the point of me sharing what they do with you is because they are organisations that I believe in. And I just wanted to explain, because you might have heard some adverts previously on the Fertility Podcast, I was trying something a bit different. This podcast was hosted on a different platform, Acast, which you can still hear it on, which had external sponsors kind of around the content. So if you found that a bit kind of annoying, apologies, it won't happen now. What you will only hear is messages from people who I feel are worth you hearing. All right, so no more random ads, yeah? There's my disclaimer for you. The Fertility Podcast is supported by OvuSense. If you're trying to monitor your cycle and finding it overwhelming, OvuSense is the only ovulation monitor on the market that is a class 2 medical device. It has a vaginal sensor and app and fits like a tampon, so it's really easy to use and comfortable to wear. Now you use it at night while you sleep and then in the morning you simply remove, wash it and download your data to see your cycle pattern. Now OvuSense has proven comfortable for women in over 10,000 cycles of use and can predict ovulation up to a day in advance and can confirm it with 99% accuracy. To find out more, visit ovisense.com. The Fertility Podcast is also supported by IVF Matters, the UK's first online fertility clinic, where you can order tests delivered to your door, have scans at multiple locations, and speak to consultants in the comfort of your own home. It's a truly unique way to experience your fertility journey. And you can find out more at ivfmatters.co.uk. Now, I know how daunting it is finding out information about fertility issues, so I wanted to tell you about The Fertility Show. It's on the 4th and 5th of November at London's Olympia and is open to anyone wanting to start or extend their family. You can meet experts face-to-face at the exhibition or attend one of the brilliant seminars by a leading fertility specialist. Visit thefertilityshow.co.uk for more information. So there you have it, episode 100. Thank you so much. And also, I've just seen Facebook tell me that my Facebook page, The Fertility Podcast, has now got 300 likes. So thank you again. I'm just trying to spread the word. And if you know anybody else that you think could benefit do share get them to share so thank you for your little messages on facebook a few mentions i want to make janine gregory also nicola salmon mel o'brien emma girl braith laurie velotta rachel air alison reed uh, ali carroll cecilia shing to Catherine postnet to richard clottier to mindful ivf to jennifer frappier to julia bueno to saskia at my beehive to endo the world and Rachel Rue. Thank you for supporting me. So the show notes for this episode are thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash 100. Why not? And there you can find out more about Dr. Kevin and I've put links to his Twitter and what have you. And as always, I do really appreciate your feedback on what's been discussed in this episode. Or if there's something that you would like to be covered, then just email me natalie at thefertilitypodcast.com. Thank you again so much from the bottom of my heart for supporting me and being here on this journey with me. And here's to the next 100. Yay. Until the next time, take care.